My parents weren't allowed to sign until high school and college. Before that, the school systems prevented them from signing and told them that signing would hurt their learning experience. So for example, when mom was a child, if she was caught signing in school, they would you know, slap her wrist, they would tie her wrist to her desk to prevent her from signing. And this is not uncommon. I had made a video with my parents where I let my parents tell their story about how they learned sign language, how their school environments were growing up. And my mom mentioned these things. And there were several deaf people in the comments just going straight down saying, hey, look, uh, I had a similar experience. Hello, Clever Harris Tribe, and welcome back to season six. Today, we're having another first. Our first person who is bilingual in a sign language. And you're like, what? Is that a thing? Yeah, it's a thing. So we are welcoming actually a CODA comedian, Brad Klein from Chicago. But first of all, Brad, could you tell us what CODA is? It's not a nationality, so explain. It, it, it is not a nationality, <laughs> but it has its own culture and uh, interesting things within it. It's CODA, so C-O-D-A, stands for Child of Deaf Adults. Uh, it's usually given to a hearing person who has one or two deaf people living in their house. Lucky for me, both my parents are deaf. So I'm a, I'm a CODA uh, through both my parents. Growing up, they would speak and sign me at the same time. I got to pick up both languages you know, simultaneously, which helped a lot because then I had two languages at home instead of just one. When I would speak, when I was learning to talk, I talked exactly like my mom. And my mom has, you know, she doesn't have perfect speech because she's never heard herself speak. So my mom put me in front of the TV, a lot of PBS, uh, a lot of uh, Big Bird and Mr. Rogers neighborhood. And that helped a lot. Also, my parents were the only deaf people in my family. So I had cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, everybody who could also be speaking to me so I could pick up the language in many different ways. But I picked up the sign language through my parents and their friends. And then, of course, uh, their kids who are also CODAs. And we would sign and speak. And just like every generation has its own language, you know, Gen Z and boomers have different language. The same thing goes for the deaf culture too. Different generations have different slang and codas are no different. Uh, we have our own style too. And when people think of sign languages, they usually just think ASL, but there's over 300, you guys, all over the world. There's 70 million people who are deaf and speak a sign language, plus the people who are bilingual, like Brad. What's fun about the 300 languages is they all come from uh, different places. So, for example, you would think that in England, their sign language would be very similar to ours in ASL, American Sign Language. No. I see and I follow a lot of different uh, people, especially CODAs online on Instagram and TikTok. And it's so interesting to me to watch the different sign languages and how some signs are similar and some are different. Uh, but one good example is BSL, British Sign Language, is very different from ASL. Uh, I was fortunate enough to go to Paris uh, last month and I met some deaf people in Paris. And it was so interesting learning from them that there's a man by the name of uh, Thomas Gallaudet. There's a college named after him in Washington, D.C., he went to France, found a French deaf teacher, brought them over. And then this teacher basically invented ASL, gave it a lot of its influence. Then in World War II, during the invasion, deaf people were very you know, tight-lipped about 
sign language, afraid that that could cause them to be picked out of the crowd. So they stopped signing for a while. It was very secret. Then after World War II, they tried to develop the language again, but it was so broken in places. They went back to America and said, hey, ASL and LSF are the most similar of the two sign languages. Would you mind coming over? There are some LSF people here, like traditionalists, brought them back to France. So now LSF has even more influence with ASL, like back and forth. Now, they're still two very different languages. There's still many things that are different about the signing, but I found it just so interesting that uh, it's French sign language and American sign language that are the two most similar. And then you have other ones that, you know, pick out from different languages and they're derived by culture and area. But it just shows you how diverse sign language can be the same way that our spoken languages can be so diverse based on geographic area, influence from other countries, things like that. But unfortunately, still, as you said, with the sign language speakers in France, that they were kind of afraid of discrimination. People who sign today still face a lot of discrimination. Even in ancient times, some of our smartest people in history, Aristotle and other people like that, said really stupid things about deaf people. How has that started to change? What Have you ever seen your parents face any discrimination? Yeah, unfortunately, I see it all the time. I know I'm signing and speaking, and I want to make sure I'm as eloquent in both languages as, as possible. Yeah, for this one, I think I'm just going to speak because I want to make sure I, I hit it as hard as I can. My parents have been discriminated against quite a bit in their lives. This is their story, everything they passed down to me. But for, for a simple example is my parents weren't allowed to sign until high school and college. Before that, the school systems prevented them from signing and told them that signing would hurt their learning experience. So, for example, when my mom was a child, if she was caught signing in school, they would, you know, slap her wrist. They would tie her wrist to her desk to prevent her from signing. And this is not uncommon. I had made a video with my parents where I let my parents tell their story about how they learned sign language, how their school environments were growing up. And my mom mentioned these things. And there were several deaf people in the comments just going straight down saying, hey, look, I had a similar experience. A good example of this is when my mom was in fourth grade. She had a teacher that wanted them to learn sign language, but they had to be very sneaky. So they had like an after-school club. They would learn. That teacher was then caught teaching sign language, so they fired them. Everyone was punished. And then uh, my mom went to a deaf overnight camp when she was in eighth grade, and it was run by deaf people with deaf counselors. They ex encouraged everyone to sign, and my mom was so scared at first. Again, if you've been physically hit on your hands for signing, you're going to be a little, little tough. But my mom said that summer was one of the greatest of her lives because once she could sign and talk with people, it's like her brain just opened up. It was doors opened up for her that never had before. And a part of this too is if you're not audibly hearing a language and you're not receiving it, it's so much harder to learn. Whereas a sign language for my, my mom and, and lots of other deaf people, it's visual, which is where they get all their cues from. So if you're not seeing a language, it's so hard to pick up. So she sees sign language. It's a beautiful, expressive language. I will say we've come a very long way. She just retired from being a deaf teacher in a deaf program. She taught at her old high school, and then she taught at an elementary school. She's had many different jobs in the hearing world and the deaf world. But yeah, it's come a long way. 
sign language in schools is very much accepted. But that's just one example of my parents being discriminated against. It still happens today. Again, there's implicit and explicit discrimination. But a simple example of implicit discrimination is captioning. It's so helpful for everybody. It's essential for some and useful for everybody. But we look around and if it's not mandated, a lot of people won't do it. Some people need this captioning. So can we just put it out everywhere? Because you never know when someone has an auditory issue. If somebody has an, a processing issue, you could have autism. You could have a whole range of different things. You could be like me, a coda. And I grew up with captioning and I find it to be so helpful when I'm eating chips on the couch. The crunch in my head is so loud, I need to read it. But yeah, I mean, not everybody has captioning everywhere. And so it can make it things a little bit difficult. A great example of this is announcements on airplanes or at gate changes. They don't tend to put them up on the big screens. All right, well, if there's a gate change, my parents are going to be sitting at the gate wondering why everyone just got up and left. It can be tough. So that's not the airlines actively trying to hurt my parents. But I do want to state that things could be better. And I think with a little bit of empathy, we can find those things. And I think most importantly, speaking to the people that are affected about how we can change and improve things for the better, not just for the deaf community, but for everybody. Yeah, exactly. We've had captions for another reason since 2020, because most of our viewers are ESL people. So I'm not talking about sign language, you guys, but I'm talking about all of you who are speaking English as a second language. And I know personally for me, I've learned English and Spanish as a kid growing up. Sometimes I still hear English words in it. And like, what word was that? If I can hear it and also see it at the same time, that really helps. Absolutely. I've had a number of people come up to me and tell me that as an ESL individual, they love captioning. They love being with the deaf crews at different events. A good example of this is my day job is in digital marketing. And I work with people all around the world. When we go to big conferences and such, I do tend to try to sit where the sign language interpreter is going to be. I find it to be uh, fun to watch the interpreter take it in because it's my first language, but also hear the presenter on stage. But I noticed that there's a large amount of people who English is their second language that will also sit in the deaf areas because that's where the captioning tends to be the best. And they uh, get the most out of the conference when they can hear the speaker, but also read captioning by there. Again, captioning essential for some, but useful for every single person because you never know what somebody needs and makes life a lot easier. Yeah, that's true. And now with AI, it's much easier to do. You can at least have that as a baseline and maybe have a human check it as you go along. So there's no excuse, people. <laughs> agreed, agreed. Technology's come a very, very far away. We've heard a little bit, you mentioned this deaf culture. Could you explain what are some aspects of deaf culture that are unique from quote unquote English speaking culture? I'm going to go back to signing because it's now I get to talk about deaf culture. It's a lot more fun. fun. Deaf culture is a culture in itself. It's a beautiful language. Think of it just like you would if you went to Paris, if you went to any other country. It's like jumping into its own world. My favorite part of deaf culture and sign language is the fact that your body language, your facial expressions, your mouth movement, they all convey your emotions. Because you can't hear how loud something is, 
if you want to say that like, oh yeah, I had a sandwich for lunch. Cool. I found $1 million in my coat. Cool. And your eyes get bigger. You get more expressive. You see it. It's right in front of you. And you get to be so much more expressive. You get to be more active. And your conversations are so much more interactive. You know when a deaf person's ignoring you because they're not looking at you. And I also noticed that uh, the deaf community tends to be very blunt. If they want to say something, they will say it to you. It's a beautiful thing to me. And I, I will tell you that any chance I get to be with the deaf community and the culture, I always prefer it because I guess I, I grew up with it 18 years of my life. Now, there's things I, I love about the hearing world and everything about that, but I straddle the middle the whole time. I can go back and forth. Deaf culture is a wonderful, wonderful place. And I always seek it out any chance I get. Go hang out with my deaf friends, go to ASL student meetups to talk about my life and with my deaf friends and our different perspectives on the deaf community. I'm fortunate that I had a very good experience with the world accepting me as a coda with sign language. Like I told you, my parents weren't always accepted and there's other codas. There's other deaf people who have different experiences than me, but I always look to my deaf friends, my deaf relatives, my deaf everybody. I'm connected to them for life. Yeah, it's beautiful. You definitely are a clever hybrid from day one. <laughs> yes, yes. My mom, my mom knew I was hearing when she was pregnant with me because she turned on music and she could feel me dancing and moving. And she said, oh, good. And then I came out and the doctor said, oh, we have to get hearing tests to make sure you can hear. My mom goes, I'm pretty sure you can hear. We went to the doctor. Doctor said, oh, yeah, yeah, he's hearing. Okay, we'll come back in a few years. We'll, we'll keep in, looking at it and make sure nothing happens. His hearing to lose it. Uh, we have good speech therapy. Mom's like, he doesn't need speech therapy. I speak. His father speaks. We have relatives. A few years later, I came back. We saw that same doctor. And I was just talking and talking and talking and talking. He's ear off. And he looks at mom and says, how do I shut him up? Mom said, you asked for it. It's your fault. I can't hear him. It doesn't bother me. You take him. It's all yours. It's always fun when my mom can take the power back and show them that the only thing she, she can't do is hear. So she can do anything else she wants. My mom is one of the smartest, wisest people I know. Same with my dad. They both worked very, very hard to overcome some of the, the obstacles that life throws at them for being deaf in a hearing world. So I'm, I'm very proud of them. And that's why I make those videos with them. I want to help tell their story. I want them to tell their stories, but I also want to have fun with them and show people how different my three-person family is, not just the entire world. Anytime you have a child from who is in one world and then their parents are from a different world. They're always trying to blend their two cultures together. I have many friends who their parents come from another country. They've moved to America and they're always trying to find their identity between their parents' original country and now trying to assimilate with the United States and American culture. And that even gets harder when they were born in another country. And I've noticed a lot of similarities where, of course, there's the translating at a restaurant for a word we're not sure what it is but also just the making sure that you stay true to your parents culture what you're raised in but also not seen as an outsider with your friends your family and this world that you're living in 24 7. Yeah and it's hard to do in a society that tries to put everyone into little boxes some of us are more like Venn diagrams yep. we have a little bit of two sides. I or more, more yeah, than two. I wholeheartedly agree.
Yeah, I think everybody is unique. Everybody has a Venn diagram of many different aspects of their lives. We just try to find our community and our friends and live a happy life. We as humans like to compartmentalize as much as we can, but we're also diverse and we grow as people and we lose interests, we gain interests, we lose friends, we gain friends. We're amoebas. We just flow from point to point. Well, you mentioned a few minutes ago that your day job is marketing and then you're also a comedian. How do you balance the two? Uh, the fun thing is comedy usually happens at night and I can work my nine to five during the day. I also work from home. So yeah, I, I work in uh, marketing. I have for about 12 years now. I work on the social media side of things and I help businesses understand strategies, growth options, where to go within the social media world to help grow and scale their businesses. And, you know, I've always been interested in comedy. My first ever comedy show, I was in second grade. I remember getting up and telling horrible jokes. I told my mom I wanted to write my own jokes, not just take them out of a joke book. They were horrendous. Like I remember one of the jokes and it was just horrible, but I got laughs. It gave me confidence. My first ever open mic was in my senior year of college. I was fortunate enough to run into a pretty prominent person in the comedy world. They heard some of my jokes about growing up with deaf parents that I had written my entire life. A lot of stories, a lot of jokes off of that. And they told me to go up and do an open mic. They thought I'd be a big hit. That was about 12 years ago as well. And I really haven't looked back since. I will say that I dedicated myself more to my career, like my day job, five, six years post-college, but still doing some comedy on the side. I lived in Washington, D.C. for a few years and did some improv classes out there. And then when I moved back here to Chicago, I mean, Chicago's a huge comedy city. It's a wonderful comedy city. So I said, hey, let me do some improv here. Let me go do some cool things all around. I learned sketch comedy like they do on Saturday Night Live and have run multiple shows. That's what all these posters are behind me. But I've always done stand-up kind of on the side for fun here and there. Post-pandemic, uh, obviously we're all by ourselves. So I just said, hey, let me dive into stand-up comedy. You can't really do sketch or improv online. So I started doing stand-up on some of these virtual shows. People really liked me. So once we were able to go out and be live entertainment again, I went out and did stand-up and really just been doing really well. Posting on social media post-pandemic, I was able to share some of the fun things that my parents and I have. And I think that that's where the social media day job then meets comedy was when we're all stuck at home and all I can do is make videos. Great. Let me make videos of my parents. They're in my bubble and use all these social media marketing skills that I've learned to then promote my videos and make sure that it gets seen. I'm not making like miles of money. I barely make money making comedy. My money comes from my day job. I do it so that I can pass on my parents' stories. I can make people laugh. I can make everyone's day a little bit better and just enjoy life. My day job helps small businesses grow and achieve their dreams. And then at night, I get to go achieve my dreams and make people laugh and have some fun and bring them into a world they didn't even know existed. I think a lot of people are familiar with sign language. A lot of people know how to fingerspell their name, which is amazing. But what I want is them to have a bigger window into what my life was like growing up. And then all the fun little things that come with being hearing in a deaf world, such as I am always the one who's going to tell my parents that their smoke alarm battery needs to be changed all the time. When I went to college, I would be video chatting with my parents 
And we'd be in the middle of a conversation and we'd all say, bye, bye, bye. And I'd say, mom, one more thing. Change your smoke alarm. CODAs, like anybody else, have a little bit of responsibility. I think our most consistent responsibility is we are our parents' ears for those minor little things like, hey, the tea kettle's whistling. Hey, smoke alarm battery needs to be changed. Hey, your car radio is still on. Why? (laughs) Yeah, Brad, you are being very modest. Your branding is professionally silly. And as you have said on your background, you have all the billboards of the work that you have done. You won a contest last year. And you also performed at the Lab Factory over there in Chicago. So you're doing something, right? Yes. Um, if, if, you're, if you'll allow me to brag a little bit, yes. I've also been fortunate enough to do comedy in multiple countries as well. Somebody reached out to me and they saw that I was in Paris and said, we actually have a couple of English comedy clubs here. You should come perform. So I looked up one. I saw the host. I messaged them and said, hey, would I be able to come you know, perform? And they said, yeah, we'd love to have you. Tomorrow night, here's the time, here's the club. I went. And it was a wonderful time. And it was fantastic. There were so many different people from different countries there. I remember we had people in the audience from Indonesia, from Madagascar, from Germany, from Poland, from Canada, of course, America, of course, French-speaking individuals. It was just this wonderful melting pot that everyone was there to laugh and have a good time. The performers were America, Australia, France, Britain. I was just blown away and it was so much fun and the host told me that in Europe a lot of people like to go to English comedy clubs when they're traveling to another country because they don't have a comedy club in their in their original language they are familiar with English so it's kind of that bridge between different languages and I just found it very interesting not everybody understood it because I signed in my set but I think they got the gist of it with my hands moving yeah not every joke hit in Paris like it does here in America but I learned and it was fun and it was fun to see which jokes they got and which jokes they didn't. The Jip Gaffigan of sign language. All right. <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very, very kind compliment for you. He's uh, he's high up on my, my list of uh, stand-up comedians that I, I definitely look up to and definitely have paved the way toward really fun comedy. He's a legend of the game. TikTok, you have over 19,000. Instagram is over 32,000. So how do you decide what you're going to post every week and coordinate with your parents to make a video that's actually funny? Uh, (laughs) Well, I think this is where my marketing background comes into play. With a lot of my businesses, I am thinking six months down the road, three to six months down the road about what we need to be doing, what we need to be planning for. While I will say that a lot of my my work is day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, I, I, I am used to doing a lot of planning, strategy, and thinking ahead. I also, in my phone, have many, many notes with a lot of random ideas, a lot of shorthand that just says, what about this? What about that? And then when I have time, I try to build out a script or at least a, a framework for where I want to go with a video. But also, I think it just also just comes from an everyday life. I just have fun with where my life is going with my parents. Uh, we share stories. I, I, I'm blessed to have a wonderful relationship with my parents. So, you know, just yesterday, my mom sent me a video. She was crying laughing in this video. And she was just like, All right, I got to pull it together. Something really funny happened to your dad and I today. And I need to tell you about it. Maybe we'll make a video. Maybe we'll just laugh about it ourselves. But I have to tell you. That's a special thing. And then sometimes it's just 
you know, impromptu, hey, we're together. That's pretty funny. Let's just shoot this real quick and then we can move on. One and a good example of that was I was working from their house one day. I had a comedy show up in Wisconsin. So I was working from their house in the morning so they could watch my dog and then I was going to drive up. And as I'm working, I'm on a Zoom call just like we are today. My dad is blaring a game from his iPad. And I am on a call. I'm an important client call. So I went, hey, guys, excuse me. I'll be right back. When I mute, turned off my video, turned to my dad. And I was like, I am on a work call. Like, do you mind? That iPad is really loud. And he looks at me and goes, I know it's loud. That's why I took out my hearing aid. He has the ability to just turn off his hearing. And I said, well, not everybody is like you. I need you to mute your game. And he goes, but I like it when the iPad vibrates with the bass. It makes me, you know, that's how I, I hear sound. I go, the problem is it's shaking the house and it's shaking my call with my client. So of course, then as soon as I got off the call, my dad was like, oh, I'm sorry about that. Didn't I, I, I don't think about that. You don't live here anymore. And I said, you know what? We're making a video right now. And we made a video where I'm on a Zoom call and I go, do you mind? I just took out my hearing aid and it was, it was fun and we had fun with it. It only took 15 minutes. Some of my videos take a little while to shoot, edit, right? Sometimes it comes to us in minutes. A lot of the bigger famous comedians who have Netflix specials and tour stadium tours, they like to say that uh, for every hundred jokes you write, you probably keep one to two in your set. I don't know what my ratio is. Because again, I just write shorthand in my phone and I hope, but I definitely go through some iterations where you're like, all right, well, my audience wasn't crazy about that one, but I loved it. It could get five views. It could get 5 million views. I'm okay. I'm just having fun with it. If you're a comedy nerd like we are, I'm going to put a tag up here to a video of Jerry Seinfeld talking about how he writes a joke and even counts the syllables. So stand-up comedy is not a joke, even though it's all jokes. Yeah, no, it's uh, <laughs> it's incredible how how meticulous stand-up comedy can be. Just like a song, just like a melody, your delivery, your cadence, the way that you present a joke has to be so carefully done. I've been fortunate to open for a few prominent comedians. They do not want to be bothered. They need to be going through their rhythm. They want to make sure that every like you said, syllable and beat is done perfectly because then they have a, a, a style and a rhythm. The fun thing is doing a couple of shows with these people, you can see the one to two words that they change a night to see if it did better or did worse by saying did not or didn't. Other comedians are like, we're just going to fly by the seat of our pants and see what happens. I'm not a very good mus musician, but I'm sure that there's that same type of style where you want to make sure you deliver a note. Stand-up comedy is the same way. It's an art, but it's also a bit of a science as well. I A-B test in my day job all the time. I will say I tweak some jokes, but for the most part, I'm playing off of the audience. I want to see what kind of audience I have, what kind of a mood they're in. If someone's a little more playful, I'm going to get a little bit more playful. Every time I step up on stage, I do want to make sure that everyone in the audience who paid to be there is excited and has a great time. And now with Professionally Silly, it's growing. So where would you say the balance is with your day job? Is it 50-50 or is the silliness taking over? Where do you see yourself going in the future? Uh, right now, the day job is definitely much higher up than comedy, simply because you know comedy is not like a, a regular job where it, I'm going to have a consistent stream of income. 
know, there are a few things that I'll do with companies and, you know, consult with them on some humor based marketing, combining both of my worlds together. But for the most part, my day job is my day job. Keeps the lights on. It pays for my my beautiful apartment. You know, I'm able to provide food for my family, keep my dog happy. But yes, uh, I think the comedy stuff is definitely growing. I will admit more shows. I get to travel a little bit more. But I also think that's the beauty of my day job is I work remote. I can take my computer with me. And whether I have a show in New York City, Boise, Idaho, Omaha, Nebraska, or Paris, France, as long as I have my computer, I can do my day job. I can then prep for my shows and then I can go to an eight, nine o'clock comedy show, almost live a double life and uh, make sure I also book a few free days there so that I can see my wife. That's my number one job is being a husband, being a good partner. As much as I would love to do this professionally, comedy wise, my day job is wonderful. I, I love the people I work with. Can't go wrong right now with a good balance. Yeah, there's a very practical view. Going back to Jim Gaffig again, he has a similar view where he had a show for a little while, but he said, we never get to see our kids. So even though the show was doing well, they decided to cancel it. And he supplements his comedy by doing other acting gigs or he even has a segment on CBS Sunday morning every once in a while. So that's a very practical view that for longevity. I like yeah. that. Again, going back to being a legend, I'm always flabbergasted when I when I hear about stories like that because... It's somebody just picking their priorities. And I think a lot of us would get caught up in the the fame, the fortune, the the publicity, no matter whether you are an accountant, whether you are a landscaper, whether you are an intern or you're a CEO, you just have to prioritize. Time is the most valuable asset we have in our lives. And how you spend it is how you invest your money. And I would be nothing without my family and friends. So if I can invest my time, I want it to be with my family and friends. And fortunately for me, I have 32,000 friends on Instagram now that everyone loves seeing it. So I invest into providing a little bit of entertainment, but I also don't want to forget about my inner circle. I've never had a TV show, so I can't speak to what Jim Gaffigan did, but I can imagine it's, it's a very grinding experience when you are the, the face of everything. That's a lot of pressure. You're probably pulling 12, 14 hour days. I'd probably burn out quick. Got to keep the special comedy fun. And I would say that's a wrap, y'all. So Brad, where can we find you online? Please tell us your handles, website. My Instagram is on cloud Klein. Except there's a three instead of an E. It was my wedding hashtag. Thought it was fun. Same thing on TikTok. My name sign is Bradley to be Bradley smile because I smiled a lot as a baby. So that's my parents gave it to me and uh, I've, I've kept it ever since. I, I love my sign name. And so you'll see me say Bradley a lot, which is very close to brown and beer. Yeah. And if you want to find out where Brad is performing next, you can also check out his website, professionallysilly.com. Thank you so much, Brad, for sharing with us a, another perspective that we don't often see. I appreciate yes. it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for enjoying this uh, time together and uh, thank you for broadcasting the deaf community in the culture. It's a wonderful place. And if you're ever looking to learn ASL, learn from the deaf teachers online. Uh, there's so many wonderful ones out there. And contact me. I always enjoy signing with new people. And thank you so much, Clever Strive, for staying with us until the end. We'll see you in the next one. And thank you.